0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Lighthouse Writers Workshop's Writers Buzz is a series of free events that bring together Denver's writers and artistic community. Hosted in Lighthouse's Grotto, the format is ever changing but always fun, encompassing readings, talks, special seminars, and collaborations across disciplines. Creative types aren't always good with numbers. That's why, at the Winter 2014 Buzz, we wrangled our favorite CPA, John Rogers, into explaining, free of charge, the nuts and bolts of taxes for writers. Topics included possible deductions, hobby loss rules, whether or not to form an LLC, what records you need to keep, and how to keep them.
1: Welcome to Taxes for Writers and Other Artists types. Um, I'm Mike Henry. I'm the executive director at Lighthouse. Thanks for coming. I'm so excited about this. Um, When John posed this idea of of talking about taxes for writers, I was was like, awesome, because I don't do taxes, and I'm a writer, so I figured I should probably start sometime soon. Um, No, I'm kidding. I do my taxes. Um, But I think it's really an interesting thing, because we we talk about it a lot. Um, uh, John is the accountant for uh, Lighthouse, in case you didn't know that. Um, He's been doing that for three years now, right? Three years. Excellent. And the auditors haven't shown up and nobody's, you know, uh, padlocked the door, which is awesome. Um, and what I love about John is that he's just, he's very cool and relaxed about everything. I can show him any sort of expense or any sort of issue. Or I did this in QuickBooks and I can't and i can't delete it. Um, and he's like, it's okay. And then when I do delete stuff, which is really... The, the first accountant's rule, right? Never delete stuff. Um, never throw stuff away. Um, always have an audit trail, right? Yeah, see, I, he, he's taught me well. Um, whenever I've deleted stuff, he's like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. So um, I, I love working with John. He's just incredibly smart and talented. Um, during the day when he's not super, super accountant for people like us, he's a um, mild-mannered um, accountant for the Department of Defense, Right? He could tell you some awesome stories about things that we've paid for as taxpayers that are in large hangars and things like that. Right? He should. Oh my God, a tell all. No, I think it would be awesome. Um, So uh, I'm really excited to hear what he has to say today. So let's just give a good round of applause for John.
2: Um, I am uh, a certified public accountant. Um, I've done two or three seasons of taxes so far. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to teach this class or do a seminar on this is because I am married to a writer, and so we do deal with this in our personal taxes every year. Um, I don't know if you saw the blog, but it has also been a source of um, you know fighting at some points because my <laughs> wife expects that you would be able to in some instances, just write off everything. And so what we've had to do is go back to, you know, to the rules, look through everything, <laughs> and reconsider it. And so I think, in some instances, my wife has just sort of waved the white flag. But, so that was one aspect of it. The second was, um, we have a, a mutual friend who um, just self-published a very short story collection on uh, Amazon. And, and what it had me thinking about that was, I read an article in the... It was just in one of the newspapers, and it was about a guy who was basically transitioning to uh, making a living from writing um, through self publishing. And I mean, it was a really, I mean, it was a very healthy living. And so in the article, it was essentially asking, you know, the reporter had asked him, he's like, oh, it's, you know, this is just a hobby. Um, But this guy was making six figures, and he was was a sci fi novelist, and he had like a rabid following, uh, uh, you know, followers of readers. And we're like, he had fan fiction, and I mean, it was really quite impressive. And he, from the Amazon marketplace, was actually sort of taking his work to get published. And so, I sort of saw an opportunity there, where just to sort of explain how the hobby loss rules work, how deductions for writers work, and then I think we also have, we you know in Lighthouse we do have discussions about you know, whether or not classes, books, expenses that writers incur um, are deductible. So. Um, I really appreciate everybody coming out. It's 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Um, these, there are elements of this that are really, um, there, there are elements of the, the writing rules and self-employment rules that are really tedious. And so what I've tried to do in the handout and what we'll try to do in the class is I want to focus on the bigger concepts of it. And if we have really detailed questions, technical questions, we can absolutely dive into those. But for the purposes of brevity and keeping everyone awake, um, we'll stick with the sort of the big concepts because there are elements of this where it just really gets into um, really detailed types of expenses, and and I think yeah for our purposes we'll stick with the big concept. So um, there are handouts and they'll come around. Um, if you don't have a handout, uh, maybe take a gander at um, at one of your friends' handouts. So, and I think we'll probably go maybe about half an hour, 40 minutes, do a break, break 10 minutes, go 40 minutes. I don't think this will take the full two and a half hours. So, um, so what's the big, what, the big concept, the big idea behind hobby loss? Um, it starts with, if you can think of a gentleman farmer, um, that's kind of where this started. The original hobby loss rules for the IRS, they date back to the 40s. And so what was happening was you had a lot of guys... and and gals and just individual taxpayers and what they were doing was they had income from multiple sources so they'd have income from a a business that they were running or um, they had ownership rights in a company and what they were doing is they had side activities in which lost money, wineries, gentlemen farms and what they were doing was they were using these side activities to offset their regular income and so if there's one thing that the government and particularly the IRS doesn't like, it's when you're Basically, using personal expenses to get rid of income and lower your tax bill, and so what they enacted was they enacted the hobby loss rules, which essentially says, "Hey, if this is just a personal losing you know this is a personal affair or a money losing idea that 's more related to a hobby, you can 't use that to offset your income and so that 's really the core like the big concept of the of of the hobby rules are that you they don 't want you using." hobby expenses or personal expenses against your regular income. That's the the big idea. So, and then I think, uh, the other element to that is there are things in my business and I'm sure there'll be things in your writing business or, you know, whatever your artistic endeavor is that have m- mutual use or dual use. And so you will find things where, uh, we have in our house, we have a printer and we have a printer that we use personally when we print out recipes and we have a printer that I print out tax returns and I print out. Um, things for my business, and so I do split the use of you know some of our uh some of our expenses I split between personal and business use and i just I just try to use a fair number and and use it that way, so there are expenses that do have dual things, and so with my wife, I do know that she reads and buys a ton of books on Amazon, and I know that those books are read for pleasure and then they're also read for advancing her craft and so I do encourage we do write off the books and we say like okay. I do. I mean, I ask a simple question. I don't always get a simple answer, but I say, you know, what? What's the purpose of the book? I mean, why it, How much would? You, if you had to do a rough estimate, can you divide the time between your personal and you know what you did as far as your craft? And so, we just try to use it. Common sense is usually the best thing, and um, we can get into certain elements of documentation and stuff like that as we kind of continue on. So, we get into the hobby loss rules with the IRS because what they're looking for i 'm um, assuming where this is really what they 're really trying to do is stopping individual taxpayers from offsetting their income that 's the big idea and so what they 're looking for is um, they 're looking for taxpayers to have to show a profit um, every three out of five years so that 's kind of the big idea and that they 're presuming that your 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 business or your activity is engaged for for a profit and so if you 're just starting out. Um, most businesses, I think, in the first few years don 't make a lot of money. you know I think that there 's a lot of like high startup costs you have you know various other things that you 're going to be dealing with and so you you they 're looking for there 's a presumption of profit if you can show profit in three or five years. so what if you don 't show profit in in the first year, the second year, the third year? Um, we can get into sort of how that works as far as like your assessment and your analysis of the hobby loss rules and um i hope does everyone have a handout? at this point. Okay, good, good. So the IRS is the one who would if, so when you file your taxes uh, you have your W-2 and then if you're running a a writing business, you're going to file a Schedule C which is just, it's a business uh, it's an individual business return. So entity wise um, I I think the majority of people would just be a sole proprietor in this uh, instance. There, um, and I wish if Ted McCombs was here I would ask him, but um, there are some entity considerations depending on the kind of writing that you're doing. Um, and if anyone has any, the, the only reason that you would not want to do a sole proprietor situation potentially would be if you thought there was any risk that someone would sue you. So if you were writing something where you felt like someone would say, hey, this work or this manuscript slanders me in any way, or you feel like there's a risk that you could be sued, maybe they, that, that if you have that if you have that situation maybe we'll talk after the class
0: <laughs> but
2: for general purposes it would just be a very simple schedule c and so your expenses are going to be basically coming out of that schedule c that flows into your main tax document and that's going to be basically how your writing business operates for tax purposes so if the irs were to come in and challenge you running a business and saying Hey, this is a writing activity. This is not engaged for profit, and we don't want you to use the Schedule C. And we're going to say, look, they're going to basically say, we don't think this is a profit making activity. So if you've just started out, and let's say it's year two, and you're deducting losses, and they challenge you, you do have an option to delay the challenge. Um, and so what you would do is, and you would only do this if you're, you were questioned. Um, I have a really good friend who does taxes. Uh, and he's done them a lot longer than I have. He's probably about eight to ten seasons in. And he, we, talk, we did discuss this, and he said that he has never had a challenge on a hobby loss. However, he did say what they're really looking for is exotic things. So if you were to try to write off a race car, if you were to try to. And, and if you were to try to. <laughs> right? Or, but they, I mean, so what they're looking for is just. Large dollar expenses that of a personal nature. So, if you were to buy a, you know, an extremely high-end computer and try to use that on your taxes, not show anything, not show anything else, the IRS could easily come back in and challenge it, saying like, "Hey, what's going on here? This looks this looks like a personal expense. Um, I don't really understand how you're going to um, run this as a as a business." And we'll get into the sort of the core components of what they look at. So, um, on page two of your handout. Is there's nine hobby loss rules, and so this is what the IRS is going to go through, and it's also something that you, as uh, someone who's going to be operating your own business, would go through, in order to consider whether or not you're operating your activity as a business or a hobby. And so, I know that a lot of I know a lot of writers are going to have years where you're like, from my wife's experience, I know that a lot of the projects are long; they're big projects; they take a number of years. And so, I do think that there are aspects of writing a bigger project, completing a thing, where you might show losses in one, two years, you know, in two or more years, and then have a really big payday in the third. And so, there are elements of it that I do think that are unique to the the business of writing that do do take a longer time. So, um, we'll run through these nine things. There are a couple of these, and the way that they assess these is that it's kind of positive it's negative is say yes no or it's neutral it doesn't work either way and so we'll go through the rules i have a couple of examples in the back and so we can run through those as well and i think that will really hammer home the hobby loss rules and i think that um, understanding these and then considering that with your own writing activity i think that'll be really valuable um in just understanding sort of what they're looking for so if you have any questions, <laughs> feel free to raise your hand, and we can. If anything is not clear, just please let me know. So, um, I I always we laugh because accountants speak and writers speak is sometimes very very different. And so, <laughs> if you see any grammatical screw ups or things that are just written in alien on your uh, on your things that don't make sense, just let's uh, please raise your hand. Let me know. Go ahead. Um, I'm, just to be clear, it, it's
0: called hobby loss,
2: mm-hmm. so Are you admitting that's a hobby? If you're gonna no, use- and I, that's a great great question. And so this is the IRS's terms, and it's hobby loss. And I, I have had clients where if you said anything about hobby loss with their activity, that it would really upset them. And so you would, these are, this is a term that the IRS uses. So your activity, if you determine, so the, I think the, one of the most important points is that you make the determination on whether or not your writing is a business. And then you can go through these, you know, these nine factors and see what you need to do in order to make it look you know, more or less operate your writing business in a way that looks like a business. So, um, the IRS calls them hobby loss rules. Uh, but instead of if, if, if someone comes to me or, you know, a client was come and say, Hey, I'm an artist. I mean, I'm a musician. I've got these expenses. I would say, let's, you know, let's talk about it and let's figure out kind of how you're doing this and, um, what's going to be the best choice for you. And so it's an individual determination. The IRS doesn't decide whether it's a hobby or not. These are just, these are their um, hobby loss rules that they call them to do it, to assess whether it's a business or a hobby. And I think a lot of the determinations on the nine, uh, on the list of nine, they're factual determinations. And so um, they're, it's, it's less about intent and it's more about how you're, um, how you're operating the activity. So, um, the very first one, it's just the manner in which you carried out the activity, and essentially, it's asking you whether or not, like, so elements of things that would be, I think the, and I've I've read this somewhere, and and it was essentially the idea was, um, it was a really instead of the nine rules, it was some another CPAs two point test was um, number one, does it look like a hobby, and then number two, could you walk away? And could you just walk away clean from the activity and never touch it again? And would anyone notice or care? And that was sort of one of their tricks for telling, you know, for advising people on it. And so my answer for you know the assessment of writers and stuff is like, well, number one, I don't know that I personally, outside of my you know my exposure to lighthouse, I don't know very many people who write for fun. Um, I I know I know a lot of readers. I know people who. who have uh, a lot of ambition to write, but like I, I think a serious pursuit of it, I would say that it's not entirely a normal affair. Um, <laughs> and not that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, I, I you know, uh, but I don't. I think that it's an activity that it has elements that might, on paper, it might look like a hobby, but when you really get down to it, and I, you know, I watch my wife work, and I, and I and I see the amount of effort that goes in, you know, to individuals' project, projects here at Lighthouse, and I see you know, we're at Lit Fest and stuff and that you see what people have at stake. Yeah, it's really not, it doesn't really look like that. And so what might look like just at, you know, uh, on paper or just at a brief view, I really think that there's a lot more going into these things. So I think the first test of sort of the no-nonsense hobby loss rules are, there's a lot that go into this. The second element is, can you walk away? And that one's a little bit tougher because I would imagine you can walk away. And I mean, the majority of people who are pursuing this, um, are pursuing it as something they're aspiring to be. And so I do think there are elements there where it, it becomes the, they just are, the, do you have a lot of skin in the game? But, you know, on the same, you know, uh, sort of as a counterpoint, I do see the late nights. <laughs> I do see people coming here from six to nine. I see a lot of hard work going into these projects. So, um, and a lot of time invested. So, so the, back to the nine rules. So the first one is just how you operate how you would operate this. So if you're a writer, the, it really, and and one thing I did, sorry, before we go into this story, I want to back up one more time, but I do think um, the majority of stuff is, or the majority of things with like a, a writing business is, it's just, is the, it's the idea of how you operate the activity. And so you don't need software. You don't need a lot of things to do it this way. And so a lot of these things, and one of the reasons I really wanted to do the course was, um, the majority of people can do their own taxes. The majority of people can keep accurate books and records. I mean, those things are fairly; um, those are fairly achievable things. And I think in just doing some of those, uh, in doing some of those easy administrative things, I know this is it's tough because you're like, I'm a writer. What do I want to do all this administrative stuff for? But doing some simple things really starts to make your activity look like a business. And I think if you were going to proceed and, and try to use writing as a deduction. Um, there's some things on here that are really easy to get as far as an affirmative. So um, back to the first one, do you keep accurate books and records? Um, it could be an Excel spreadsheet. It could be a, a notebook. It doesn't, have to be, it doesn't have to be QuickBooks. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Do you, do you have a, a ledger with your, ex, you know, your income and your expenses? Um, and the other element of it is um, they want to see that you keep your finances separate. And I do think this could be kind of a tricky point if you don't have a ton of money coming in, um, that element of it can be a little tricky. I do have some ideas for that as far as ways you could move around it. Um, you could make uh an investment into a bank, a side bank, just saying like, hey, I'm gonna put five hundred bucks in here and just operate this. That's my contributed that's my con- my con- my contributed capital into my business account and just sort of operate it um on the side. So keeping the money separate. Keeping accurate books and records. I think uh, of this list of nine. That one's a pretty easy one to get. Like I really, you know, that that one you can check off as affirmative, and uh, that's kind of hard to challenge. So the second one is the expertise of the taxpayer or their advisors. And so what this one is really looking at is saying, do you um, are you an expert or do you have really the capacity to do what you're trying to do successfully? Um, and another element of this, I think. Have you consulted with anyone? Do you have, and I think another element of this too is do you have a business plan? Um, Which is, I think this one is another one of the, it's kind of easy ones to get in the sense that you can say, you know, I have a specific business plan. This is what I'm trying to achieve. Um, And also I've studied the market and this is how I think I'm going to make money at this. And your business plan, I think uh, there's a lot of free resources for those. Um, SBA, the Small Business Association, has a ton of examples, um, all free, and this is another thing you can do with a word processor to say, "Hey, this is what I this is what I'd like to do. This is how I'm going to get there." And you know, if you want to, I think there's a, a there's a, I think a lot of people here that you can bounce ideas off of and say, "Hey, you know, realistically, does this project have legs? Is this something that's going to work?" Um, and I think this one is another one that you can get this one pretty easy. So the first two, more they're not exact gimmies, but I you know I think they're achievable. Um, the third is basically the time and effort that you put into it. This one's another gimme. Um, there's really no if you're doing this on, at night and on the side, I don't think there's any problem with that. What they're looking for is material participation and that you actually set out to what uh, set out to what you want to achieve. It's so. Um, I did hear a story, and I haven't there, a lot of the stories from hobby loss you hear, uh, some of them are anecdotally, but the one story that comes to mind was there was a photographer who was photographing something in all seven continents It was something that you know he was going to go to all of them, he was going to take photos, and then he was going to publish you know put this book together. so in the first years you know, the first two years, he went out and he took pictures all around the world, and he incurred a, you know a great deal of expense. And when he was challenged against it, one of the things that was really determinative against him, and, and they actually, I think the losses came, you know, the the, the expenses came back to him, um, was that he never wrote the book. He never finished the project. And so I, I think there are elements of number three is the, the amount of time that you put in and then also, you know, did you achieve, you know, your business plan that you set out? Do you have a finished product? So you might have, you know, at the end of three or four years, you might have a finished book and if the IRS were to challenge you, you'd say, well, you know, I have my finances separate. Um, I have a business plan. I've got finished books. I've submitted them for, for publication. And uh, I've really gone, you know, I've really gone at this with everything. Like this isn't a hobby to me. This is a business and I've I run it as such. And so we're grading through the first three and they're looking, you know, I think these are ones that look pretty good. I mean, these are things that you can control. Um, and I think, so the thing to remember about the, the set of nine rules is that there's no factor that says yes or no, like no factor controls. They're all sort of considered, um, no one is, uh, affects another. And so these first three, I think are ones that are, 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 are achievable. Um, so number four is about, um, asset appreciation. Probably not that, uh, really not all that relevant to riders. This would be as if like a lot of the hobby last stuff is about horses there's a lot of things in here, <laughs> Believe uh, people who are buying and breeding horses. And so the idea that certain animals would be worth more, certain collections would be more. So assets appreciating value, I would call this a neutral. So I don't, I, uh, unless you're buying uh, old manuscripts from, uh, or something you're collecting, but that's really not riding. So I don't really, this one's a neutral factor. So, so far, I think uh, three or four affirmative, one neutral, uh, three that you can control, one that doesn't really factor in. Um, so number five is the success um, that you've had in carrying on uh, a business like this. So your success in writing previous to this, and so this one I do think is one where it could be a negative if you haven't published, if you're working on something where you haven't had success, or you, essentially they define IRS define success as making money. But if you haven't made money at a pursuit like this before, they're going to say, well, you know you don't have you don't have a history of success with this in the past. And you know that's fine and i and i think uh, i don't I think it could be a, a negative, but I also think that let's say you're in a different position and uh you're publishing short stories and you're sort of building that portfolio to get a larger work and you know, a larger project done, I do think that you can sort of consider those in context and then if uh you're getting encouragement i i, I there are elements of it that I think um, this one you could potentially move it to neutral, but I do see this one potentially being kind of a negative so uh, it is what it is. Oh, go ahead. Does, does it have to be the same specific activity? It's a great question.
1: Let's say that you write uh, travel articles in mm-hmm. magazines, and then you decide you're going to become a novelist. That's two different creatures. It
2: absolutely is. And there's, um, and this is, there's a court case that just recently came out, and it's uh, along the same lines. Um, long story short, it was a track coach, high school track coach, who was doing coaching on the side. So he was uh, coaching private athletes, so he had nine years of losses and in the in the last year he made twenty seven dollars and so he also this in and, and he when they challenged him on whether or not it was a business, he fought back and said no like this is a business and you know when the facts of the court case and it was decided in his favor he'd put over a quarter million dollars into his business in his side business and and had he, you know in in this question had he had expertise and, and coaching track or, you know, the, what he was doing as his main job, he was a teacher, track coach, and private track coach. They, that was in his favor, that he had expertise in a similar activity. It was, you know, uh, coaching track and doing it on the side. So travel writing, journalism, writing on the side, I would think those, those activities are pretty close together. So I would say, yeah, if it's, that, that would be absolutely affirmative. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. So how
0: does a how does beginning writer,
2: Absolutely. If you're
0: working at Walmart during the day and sure. working at night.
2: Absolutely. Um, so how does a beginning writer fit in? I think that's a, a really great question. And I think um, my answer is there might be elements in the first few years where this uh, operating or writing as a business might not be the best choice. However, there might come a time that it is a really good choice. So let's say um, the guy who's working at Walmart or, or I have an example in the back who's working at Best Buy and he's writing a novel. He finishes a sci-fi novel. He consults advisors. He does all the right things. And he's. it might be a good choice for him if he has a realistic, you know, if in his, I mean, the challenge is it's not just your intent to publish a book that's going to make the difference. It's going to be like, does, you know, does he, did he actually finish the book? Did he put it on Amazon Marketplace to sell? I mean, what what were the actions that he took to make it look like a business? So a beginning writer um, it might not, you know. When I when we took this class, I think one of the concerns that I initially had was I didn't want to encourage people to take tax positions that were unrealistic, and I didn't want to send everybody out to be like, well, "I'm going to do this as a business and write all my things on." <laughs> but what I did want was, is I, at the end of the class, I wanted everyone to be familiar with it and to say, "Hey, this might not be the right choice for me right now, but should I get a project going and?" this really start to catch, you know, start moving, I'm going to know my stuff so that when this goes forward, I don't, I'm not sort of retrospectively looking back and being like, oh, what do I do now? Um, go ahead. So, um, this is sort of related. Suppose
1: you start out and you're a beginner and you're not treating it as a business. mm mm-hmm. I mean,
2: It's a great question. Um, I, it went directly into
0: what I'm doing now. Can, I, can, can, I, can you work back
2: and- Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is um, – I know this is risky. They always say when you amend a return that you sort of um, amplify your, your odds of being audited, but you're able to take losses two years back, and you're able to carry them seven years forward. So it's kind of a more technical idea of a tax return. But if you're owed money on your tax return, let's say you made a mistake – and you just you know took a picture of your w two or whatever and you turn it back in and it turns out that there was an error. you have three years from the date the tax was due to amend that return, so you could go back and say, "Hey, I forgot that you know I'd forgotten these last years that um I'd forgot to deduct these expenses, and so you could go back and amend it and particularly if you have um uh if you have a a profit in the current year and you 're looking for you know some tax advantages, you can absolutely do that. I know it was a very big um, this was a long time ago when I was in school, but there was a huge the actually it wasn 't that long ago there was that Deepwater horizon uh, in in uh, Louisiana there was that an enormous oil spill and one of the one of the more um, scandalous things about it was you know uh, i think it was, the company was b p they weren 't an unprofitable company, but that year they were <laughs> And so what they did was, and they were, and I I don't remember exactly if it turned out, if they carried it forward into the future or they took it into the past, but they amended their tax returns and were getting massive refunds and, uh, and I just disgusted everyone, but it is, that's the (laughs) rule. So, um, and it was, I, I remember everyone was like, this is horrendous that you can do this, but on a BP scale, it looks really bad, but, Let's say if you are a beginning writer and you had two years of expenses that you didn't get together, and on that third year you decided um, you sold a book or started selling it somewhere I mean my advice would be what are your expenses going to look like going forward because you can use you know you might be writing your next book, you might be wanting to transition away from a full time job you might want to go to you know a conference you might want to go to a w p or comic con or whatever you need to do to um, to sort of get something you know to further your business so it would be absolutely a consideration forward or backwards so just to clarify you it's sort of two years so, so the, remember 27 uh so two years back seven years forward so if you have a ma- you know a, a massive loss you're able to carry things forward okay. as well so um, and it gets a little tricky on the schedule C with some of the, with some of the expenses and we can, when we get into like home office and stuff, we can get into that and the kinds of, um, expenses that writers have. Go ahead.
1: So, uh, in making this determination is, I assume it's helpful, even if you don't have profit that mm-hmm.
0: you have
2: income. Correct. And that there are elements of that where I think, um, that are challenging and I, uh, having a having a revenue stream or having an income stream related to writing um is definitely in your best interest um some way that you can show or demonstrate that you have incoming um however you do it so I know for um and I do have some things uh, that are related to uh, related activities so if you're teaching um if you're teaching writing, I know Rebecca and is your John Carter right no Oh sorry I thought it was John. Um so if you're teaching um you might be able to operate writing and then also teaching under the and some freelance work under the under the same umbrella or the same idea of a business because you uh, there's no you know there, there there is a common sense element to it so if you have you know if you teach, you write, you do freelance work, you're a journalist there's really no need for you to have three businesses that you're running and keeping rec- records for simultaneously. I mean there's you can gain some efficiency if you were doing similar things. So if you were writing freelance articles and then also working on a novel, I think some of those expenses, as long as you were fairly explicit about how you were um, how you were doing that um, and in your business plan and you had it organized, I think that 'd be fine so um, income is important, and show being able to show some viability um, I think is important. but I would again point out to the majority of the expenses for a writer you know if you 're writing off. <laughs> a couple hundred bucks or something like that. I don't know that anyone's (laughs) going to knock your door down. Um, If you're, if you're, if you're writing off very expensive computers um, or you're writing off conferences and, and and a lot of things that um, really are, you know, if you're pushing it, you know, and if you're, if you're really aggressive with these things, I do think that you would be ill served to take those positions. So um, that's kind of where I, that's where I, I, I think on the income side of it, Especially for a writer, uh, I think that, you know bringing in revenue is a, is is a tough thing, and I know that uh, there are publications where you don't get paid, and I know that um, there are are elements where you get fifty bucks, and you might have put in a lot more than that to get to get to that point. But I also, from my you know from my uh, from my experience, I know that in in writing, a lot of those early uh, publications and and things like that are, are very essential into building a portfolio into sort of going forward in your career. And I know that they're also, it's wind in your sails, it's a feather in your cap. And as you sort of go on to the next thing, you know, each one of your publications is important to to your next project. Cause I think it sort of builds, it builds a history of publication. It builds that history of success. Well, it might not have the revenue and things like that. I mean, you could show, Hey, I'm building a portfolio of published work and I'm getting ready to, you know, I, I and I'm sort of escalating or, you know, I'm advancing this. So, um, does that answer that? Okay. Did I, um, so beginning writers I think we got in, any unanswered okay
1: so I teach writing as an adjunct at a university mm-hmm. should that income be put into this writing business
2: I would say as an adjunct because you are going to be an employee of the university mm-hmm. that this would not fit within that okay. this would probably be commercial work that you would be doing on the side like if you were doing freelance teaching or if you were doing um, independent manuscript review I think you could You could gain some efficiency by combining, but if you're in an employee situation, usually the employee stuff—you're working for someone—and there are elements of, uh, you know, there's really a distinction between an employee and a contractor. That um, you really unreimbursed employee expenses are rare. Um, That's not to say they don't exist, but um, it's sort of it's it's pretty separate from this. So this would be a kind of sort of a writing entity. But if you were an employee. Um, it sort of goes back to the previous question we were discussing was, if you were a, you know, a rider or a travel rider, does that also lend some expertise to what you're doing? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But in, as far as uh, combining the activities, it probably doesn't help you a ton. Okay. okay. Um, we went through the success in... Uh, so number six, and I think we just sort of touched on it, a history of income and loss in this activity or a similar activity. So like in the case of the track coach... He, um, you know, he had been a track coach and in addition, I think something that helped him out was he actually, he ended up coaching someone who went to the Olympics in his private coaching. So he actually, and I think that was later on down the line, but I think he had, uh, he'd had, he'd had success with it. And I think that was important to their consideration of whether it was an activity engaged in for profit or for a hobby. So, um, number eight, number six and seven are pretty similar, but it's the amount of occasional profits. Um, they're just looking for this one I think is really specific to is if you're gaming the hobby loss of rules. And so what this means is do you have, you know, do one, the first year, do you write off a few thousand dollars Do the second year? You don't report expenses and you make 50 bucks the next year you dump in, you know, another few thousand. So I think what this one is asking is um, they're looking at your business over time and saying, Hey, does this, um, is this consistently making money or, are you manipulating it so that it makes money, and I think that 's what they're you know one of the things that they 're sort of pushing against. However, I do think that there as far as writing goes, I think that there are elements of it that um, these projects take a long time, so it could you might have a year of losses and you might have two years of losses and you might sell a book and you might have three years of gains you know three years of where you 're selling stuff, and then you might go back into a lost territory so i think there are also arguments here where you'd have some things that are uh, fairly unique to to, uh, to the craft or, you know, to the work. So um, each each one of these things is going to be fairly unique. So, um, so number eight is the financial status of the taxpayer. Now, what this means, to translate, is are you offsetting your income <laughs> with this activity? And that's, uh, I think, a fairly objective determination. And are you taking a tax advantage... Through your, you know, through using personal or hobby, you know, what the IRS considers a hobby to offset your income, um, and I think your answers on some of these other ones can kind of show that you're not. However, if it's, you know, if you're having expense uh, on some of these, like uh, if you're, if it looks like you're offsetting income, I would imagine it would probably be fairly easy to tell. Um, big things, big items, things that are unusual in nature coming through uh, as a as a uh, business with no income and you're just trying to write off a personal expense. I think those kind of, those would it tend to stick out. Um, and then the last one is elements of personal pleasure or recreation. Um, so we go back to horses, right? So, um, there's a, there is a, another famous case where and more famous, but it has a notoriety in that there was a woman who, and I think it was very similar to a lot of people in that she had a lot of different things that she did. I think she was a real estate agent. she, Um, worked for H&R Block and she also had another job I mean she just did a little bit of everything but she'd always had horses and always wanted to own horses so they bought a ranch they bought a bunch of horses and what they did was they go out and she had no business plan she didn't keep the money separate and when they challenged her and she was like hey I materially participate I I really want to do this and they sort of were like "Um, you really like horses and there's really no profit motive here (laughs) and And so you can't use this, you know, and in addition, that really hurt her is that she was a real estate agent with really nice commissions and a lot of good income from other places. And they're like, well, you're really not engaged in this for profit. And it's really looking like you're using this income to offset income from other places. So, I mean, in her instance, it was, I think, fairly straightforward that this was offsetting your, her other activities. So, um, I'm going to go through just this last piece and then we'll take a break. Um, so I think the thing to remember about the list of nine is that and just remember that it's you're affirmative, you're negative, or you're neutral. So there are elements of, for your business that are going to be neutral. There are some that are going to be affirmative. But I do think there are a couple of the list of nine. I think there's at least one or two um, not applies, and I think there are three gimme. So uh, we're down to a list of seven, and you have control of three. And uh, I think you know that's pretty good. So starting out, I mean, that's, uh, I think, a lot more encouraging than... Uh, then otherwise the answer of no. <laughs> so um, I think the answer of it depends is, is a lot more encouraging. So just remember that no factor on the list controls another one, and so they're all sort of independent. And, and it's not like they're saying, well, it has to be an overwhelming. Um, you have to have five of nine in order for this to not be considered it. It's uh, it's just sort of the one one doesn't control another is essentially the answer. Go ahead
1: may address this later on, mm-hmm. but um, you're talking primarily about IRS rules. Mm-hmm. Are there 15 others for the state of Colorado and another 10 for right. Nevada,
2: etc.? Uh, the, the way that the state taxes work are a little bit different. Um, and I think I'd have to dive into some of the Colorado ones um, specifically. And it's a good question, and I'd have to look into it a little bit further. Um, but the majority of the time... A lot of your state adjustments tend to be for um, uh, state taxes, and I think what else is on there? I'm slipping my mind now that I'm on the spot for it. I know that they have the contributions to uh, they have the if you have children, if you're giving money, there's a big there's some tax credits in there for um, land stuff, uh, saving for college. There's some things in there that I think that are unique to Colorado. But as far as the hobby loss expenses, a lot of times what happens on your 1040 is really what dictates what's happening on your state return. But yeah, other States I'm mostly, I do all Colorado returns. And so uh, the tax impact in other States and actually if you, you know, become a very successful writer there are, it, your taxes become wildly complicated and uh, you would need, you would need someone with uh, tax skills in far in advance of my skills in order to help you out. And so if you get really big, you have income in other States and there are times when you would have to file Your federal return and you would be filing in every state that you made in um so when you see um for example professional athletes if they have a game in kansas city they're paying missouri taxes on that income because they get paid per game it's yeah it's a it's a really weird thing and so they need you know that's when you it gets really complicated and you need a a team of people to sort of come in and help you out so um but a great question and i'd be happy to look you know look into it further and uh and get some more information for you, but as far as the individual state rules, I think that's also an excellent consideration. So, um, let me see what else. Um, so, I think the other action is, or the other thing to consider, and we'll and we'll discuss it as we go a little bit further on in the class is. Um, they're looking for uh, on these nine considerations. If you were to say, I'm going to go forward with a the business, they're looking for more than intent. And so you would need to be able to, they're looking for, it's a factual determination. And so each one of these things you would want to support with documentation. If you have revenue, you'd want to show your revenue. If you have expenses, you want the receipts. I mean, pretty, some of the stuff is pretty straightforward. If you have a business plan, it needs to be on paper. Um, it, so it, the majority of the things just become really factual determinations and stuff. um, all right, and we will carry on with... Where are we going? All right, expenses that a writer can deduct. And so the rule of thumb for your writing expenses, and this is the the, the, the law is what's ordinary and necessary. And it, does that sound pretty broad? Yeah, it does. So um, anything that's ordinary and necessary to write... Um, you guys have an awesome business if you're writers because you have very low barriers to entry. Uh, You need a a word processor and um, you can take some classes. I mean, this is nice. I mean, outside of uh, most businesses where they seem to be very capital intensive, like if you were going to start a brewery or um, if you were to do some other things that you'd have to put a ton of cash in up front. Wow, this is nice. You can kind of do this and it doesn't you know, outside of, you know, maybe needing to buy some reference materials, it's business-wise i mean it's a very low entry point it's that's nice is it the is it, is it very competitive and difficult yes just like brewing or you know anything else so um so i i think there's a, a uh i didn't really put a list in here just because it could be exhaustive but i think just general common sense if you're going to use a business deduction that's your best rule of thumb so if you buy a book and my wife disagrees that you would ever do this, but I do ask her, and it leads to some debate. But if she buys a book and she is recommended from a friend or someone else who's read a story of hers that she read a certain novel or something like that to study the plot or to study a, a specific character or element of that book, I do expense the book as a reference material. And then what I'm looking back for is um, how much of it was you know, used for her writing for, for a professional and then how much was for pleasure, and I do try to split those. So, um, and I write it down. And uh, index cards are your friend. Your receipts are your friends. Uh, and it's—I know that some of these things administratively seem like they might be a pain, but I don't. I don't really know if you write it down in a piece of paper and documented it. It's okay. So, um, and I think we sort of skip into it, but I will talk about documentation really fast. Just the easy parts of it. Just uh, one thing I would just a general reminder is if you take a. Do, the receipts do have sort of like invisible ink these days. I don't know if you have experienced this or if I'm the only one who hoards receipts. Um, but you, there are some instances that you might want to use a scanner or everyone has a camera phone, I think. Yeah, so you can also take a picture of the receipt. Um, you can just really simply put that into a Word document, write what it is, put the date, what you used it for. Just remember that documentation... If you're going to use an expense in your writing business, then you probably you need the documentation to support it and your rationale for why you're deducting it. And that doesn't necessarily need to become an all encompassing, like, you're you know, documenting your writing business doesn't need to sort of overtake your writing business. But um, I think I don't know that some of these things would take a, a, a long time to complete. So um, we'll talk about HOMA. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Is the digital record valid?
1: Enough?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. A uh, digital record is great. Do I need
1: a paper record if I have a digital record?
2: Nope. Just make sure you have it backed up. because So they could come back in a few years, and so you might need your, two thousand. you know, let's say you could come back three years, so you obviously just keep all your stuff in a file, keep it backed up, you're good to go. So, yeah, Lynn? Um, can
0: you talk a little bit more about the whole
1: separate bank
2: account? thing? Sure, because sure, sure. It's
1: sort of like, okay, if I were receiving money, it seems like it would be easy to
0: to put it into the separate bank account. But in terms of the expenses, it's like, well, it'd be hard to pay out if the money isn't
2: there. Absolutely. if
0: the I'm buying groceries? Absolutely. Uh, great, great
2: money. question. And it's something, um, as I've put my my business together, I've, I've come through the same thing. So, uh, So the idea is that it's a separate, like you're, you're separating your writing business as an entity, not as a formal entity. That sort of has a different connotation, but um, that you're separating it from your person, and so that these are business expenses, and the other expenses are personal expenses. All you're doing is just separating the two things. So, if you have income based on your writing stuff, it would just go into a separate bank account, and it would just sort of you can take a you can take the cash out right away. <laughs> Most banks would be happy to. It's just a transaction. But it, it makes the appearance that it's separate from you. Now, your specific question about the expenses, and I have two ideas for this. Um, one is a business credit card, which I, I don't, it's not my favorite. Um, and the second thing would be that you would make a capital contribution to your business. So you would put in an, a, a dollar amount into that bank account in addition to the revenue that you're bringing in, and it would be, you would be drawing it down and it would be like you have contributed capital to start this business, and then you would just be removing that capital with expenses, and that would be your way to, to divide it.
1: Can you draw it down personally by sort of, you
2: know... You can take your capital calculating back. Calculating out my, these are my receipts, mm-hmm. and I'll write myself a check out of the business account. Yeah, you can, and I think, and I do remember, and I think on one of these court cases, the individual, the track coach, uh, and I have to, and if I remember his name it will come to me, it's really interesting, but he didn't have the account separate. But what he did have was a spreadsheet <laughs> that that really well documented all of his, his expenses. So and, and his income and expenses. So I don't he was an individual who I don't think kept things separate. But he did have detailed, accurate records. And I think as I said, he put over uh you know, the legend goes that there was over nine years put a quarter million dollars into his business. And um posted losses for all but the last year for $27 is what he made. And he said they sustained it. So, um, And he said, if you have any more, like I think there's been a couple other questions about that. And I can, um, you know, the, the sort of golden rule or you know general rule is to keep the money separate. And if you have specific sort of technical questions about that, we can talk about how to do that or just some ideas for, um, for ways to make that so that it's not a giant pain. And I think you just want to, on this stuff... This is a lot of admin things, but it's important to make um, these really do support i think how, that you're doing this as a, a for profit affair and I think that's you know you would run it like a business and not like a personal activity and I think that really does help you make a distinction I think it really supports um, it really supports that so if you have technical questions I'd love to you know we can dig into it and think about different ways if you're thinking about doing this we can we can figure something out so um, we'll talk about home office. Um, this is just regular and exclusive use of your home and to do your business. So let's say you have a writer's studio in your office. Um, now, this comes with a caveat in that you cannot use the home office as an expense unless you can't use it for losses. So it, doesn't, it will not be included. So if you have a home office and you have a dedicated space in your house, unless you're making uh, a profit, you can't use it. Um, you can't use it to contribute to losses. So um, regular and exclusive use has meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I, as I understood it, the general rule of thumb was that the, um, the location had a door and that it was exclusive to, um, to that space. So if you do have writing profits and you want to do a home office, there's two ways to do it. And the first way is you do a proportion of the square footage of the area to the home. That's the traditional way. There's a new way, and it's this year, and it's really exciting. (laughs) So what you can do is you would measure measure the same square footage in your home, and instead of doing the calculation where you take a percentage of your square footage to your entire house and then apply that percentage across all of your expenses and put it on your your home office tax form, which if you've ever done this, it's really time-consuming, and you have to really think about some things in ways that you hadn't before. Um, they are allowing this year you would take just a square footage and you multiply it times five for this year, and that's the deduction. So if it's 100 square feet, you have $500 in uh, home office deductible expense. So there was a time where home office, and you'll hear, you'll hear this anecdotally, and I don't think it's a, the same way as it was, but people would say, oh, if you have a home office, it's going to flag your return for an audit. And I think <laughs> not, that used to be the case, but not anymore. And again, I think the core concept that we discussed earlier is pretty much the same. They don't want you to use, they don't want you to write off your living expenses. So if it's just a room in your house that you don't really use, I I don't think anyone was like, just, hey, why are you doing this? And and you don't want it to make it look like you're just offsetting expenses. But if it's regular and exclusive use, and it's a part of your home that you're giving up uh, for your business, I mean, you're entitled to that that deduction. So um, during the break, we had a, it just a a brief side discussion is just about what was and what wasn't deductible. And, um, I do have a a fun fact and a question just for everybody. So if you would assume, um, if IRS came to your house and knocked on your door and, and did a formal audit, do you think that you would get more money or that you would owe money? And let's say you have just sort of a medium tax thing. So just show of hands, how many people think you would owe more money? How many people think that they would actually review return and you might get more back? It's actually the latter. It is. So there's a lot of times that, you know, and I think there's a a commercial currently that's that's like, get your X amount back, America. And there are elements to it that are very true. Um, You see, I I do see uh, self-prepared returns with mistakes. And uh, the idea is that you, and I think the best practice for for this, for writing as a business, if you choose to take it, is that you want to pay the correct tax. You don't want to... You don't want to take frivolous positions. You, don't, you, want to, you want to do it right, and you want to pay the correct amount, and you don't want to um, take advantage because it could come back, and it could really hurt you. And, uh, but if you're doing it the right way, uh, I, I, I think it could be to your advantage. So, yeah. What if the same place you write in is the
1: same place you use for
2: your day job? Great question. Um, that's a great question, and I might have to get back to you on that. Um, because that, so what is your, does your day? So is a day job? Is it a
1: computer? I come home working on here.
2: So at a desk, that's your workstation. And then at five o'clock. Oh, wow. That's a great, great question because, um, and what's interesting about that in this year, um, because of the new home, there's some new home office rules that actually allow you, if you're working at home for the convenience of your employer, you're able to write off that. You're able to use that as like sort of an unreimbursed business expense. So I'd have to. There might be some technical guidance on that question because you have some dual use issues, and so yeah, I, I'll grab you a, a card and let's um, let's dig into that. But yeah, I'd, off the top of my head, that's that's a really great question. Uh, yeah. When you say this year, do you mean two thousand and fourteen,
1: or can we do this on our two thousand and thirteen?
2: You can do it on your two, thousand thirteen taxes. Okay. So we, we always work a year in reverse. <laughs> yeah, the, great question. We always say, like, oh, this year, this year, but. We're, uh, right now, we're in the we call it a 2014 tax season, but we're preparing 2013 returns, or it's for the 2013 year. Your 2014 taxes it just works one year back, um, and so this year's taxes will be completed in 2015. So, uh, I think it's kind of a you know, weird, just a weird semantics question. And I think being accountants, we try to make things as uh, not as straightforward as possible. So there would be some there would be some question as to what year it would be. So. Uh, did you have a, did I have some more question? Um,
1: I just wondered, if my desk is in the
2: dining room right now, should I move it into a room that has a door? I mean, is that better? Oh, this is tough. I would, so the technical answer is yes. Okay. Um, the practical answer might be, you might want to visit the bulletins on home office and just look through the things. And it's, I think it's like regular and exclusive use. And so the challenge against that would be, if it was your dining room table, I mean, is that regular and exclusive use? Are you meeting clients there? I mean, it sort of starts to, it sort of, it doesn't, it's not, it's not as strong. However, if it's a little room, we have a room in our house that is exclusive use, has a door, it doesn't get used for anything else. And uh, you know, and the, the the truth of it is, it's a room in our house that we don't use because it's being used for a business. And and uh, we, you're entitled to. You know, unless you have losses, you're entitled to use that as, a, as, an, as an expense. And we'll, as I said, I will get your question answered, and I think that's a really good one. So. Um, meals and entertainment. Oh, yeah, one more. Would it help to log the hours in
1: which you're engaged in yes, writing? Yes,
2: it does. It does absolutely, absolutely help to log hours. Um, remember, in the hobby stuff, uh, you know, in, in the hobby loss rules, but I mean the sort of rules that you would consider, our, or, I mean I think the, the best thing that you could have would be a finished product. A finished manuscript. Um, I think that would really, when you, <laughs> some of these things are big. But in addition, you know, log your hours. Um, I think on some of these ones, just given the size of it, material participation on a thousand page manuscript, that's just not something you decided to do. Um, but logging, it mean, the more things that you can document, the, the more it's going to support you. So, yeah. What if you're working on the project with a co author mm-hmm. and then you've
0: got, like, meetings, travel to,
2: Sure, sure. So the commuting rules are, are very strange. Um, and so if you're driving to me, I would generally say the idea is that if you're driving to you, – the only times that you can ever really deduct commuting expenses is if it's, like, away from your your house. Like if you're driving to a temporary work site, um, then it's not. But if you're driving between jobs, occasionally that can be deductible. Um if you're driving for like driving to a meeting, you can deduct the mileage expenses on a car. Um the car stuff can you can do it two ways. You can use actual expenses and it's kind of similar to the home office and you use a percentage and then they also have a mileage rate that they use. Um so if you're driving to like meet with a co a co-author or something like that. Um yeah, I think in certain instances that would be fine. Um as long as cars can get that that gets weird because you get if you decide to do mileage and stuff, we can also talk about the details of mileage. I didn't bring all the different detailed situations and I wanted to mostly keep core concepts. So if you have questions or anything that's really technical, I have a card, have it handed out and then give you some, I can give you some, some advice and answers on some of those things. But I didn't add the car in because the cars and some of these other things that get into like, the rules just get really, they're really exhaustive. And the reason why they're exhaustive is because they're trying to keep people from Again, using personal expenses uh, against their taxable income, and so the car is like: if you use it for charity, you keep a mileage log, um, and if you're using it for business, the same way. I mean, the documentation uh, things on a car—they really want you to sort of have your ducks in a row. So, I'd be happy to answer that um, via email or, or and, and consider that specific uh, instance a little bit more. So,
0: how about you get a
1: taxi? I don't
2: drive. Right. And how about taking a taxi to me? great question another one i might have to um reach back on that one <laughs> okay. because that's another one right like, i i mean if you came and we were looking at it and it was an ordinary and necessary expense i might i mean i would lean towards yes but i said i want to see that if there is any guidance beyond okay uh the sort of my initial take on it but yeah i'd like yeah i'd like to reach back on it mr henry um
1: you may have answered this question already but i was, I was not remembering done so um so for example if about your travels to Nepal or something, Mm -hmm. or, for example, if you are um, writing an article about mountain biking, if you buy a $2,500 mountain bike, or if it costs you $3,000 to go to Tibet for three weeks and then you buy all the camping gear, of course, you're just using it for that trip, but, of course, if you're around, you might use it for purposes, Are those legitimate expenses?
2: That's a great question. And I think um, in some of those instances, you're starting to see where, this, where some of these things can go. So uh, it, I think there are some common sense elements to it. So if you had to travel to a conference, like if you had to go to AWP or you needed to go to a writer's retreat and, and sort of in the business of selling your book, yes. Um, if you're needing to go to Wyoming to, to, to write, uh, to research about a ranch... Yes. Um, and if you were going to Tibet, wow. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're
1: writing, you're writing about a sort of uh, a pastime and application, mm-hmm. right? You're trying to make money about that. Like, what I did was so cool. It was fun, right. It's a great question. So, it's, of course, it's, it's pleasure, but it's
2: also... I mean, I think you're in some of the instances and in some of those examples, you're starting to blur between personal and business. And I think... Um, objectively speaking, and if you were really going for it and you were like, you know, I'm serious, and you met, you know, if you met with your tax person and you met with an advisor and said, hey, I've already got a pre-buyer for this book, I might say, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. And, uh, let's just do it the right way. And, however, if it looks like you just like mountain biking and want to bike, um, I would, I would discourage it and just say, you know, yeah, I mean, the only reason that I would discourage it would be, I would, I would really hate. <laughs> I would really hate to see someone take uh, to have this come back or have it challenged. I think you just have to, you know, there's a sort of uh, does it look that way? Does it look like you're offsetting income? Does this look like a hobby? And I think that you know the two rules of thumb is does it look like a hobby? Can you walk away? I mean, those things start to come into it. Where I think riding specifically is unique is I don't know I I know that people read for pleasure but I don't know that that they write that people tend to there are some hobby writing there is hobby writing but I think there are elements of it that are you know beyond a hobby can you walk away the answer is probably yeah you can walk away
1: I mean if you want on a trip specifically to write about it for a travel
2: magazine or for a travel piece Mm -hmm. then yeah absolutely you're good if you're on assignment and you're even a contractor you're good Oh, man, um, I would say you could. I mean, I would say if you were writing, if you're on assignment and you had specific things that were related to um, a piece where you could really derive income or connect income very clearly. I would say, yeah. Um, if it was, if you were a you know prospective, uh, I I don't know, but that's. I think that might not be in your best interest. However. You know, then you're getting into. I think when you're, if you're established as a writer, I know that there are some rules for artists and authors that this is getting into, you know, more technical territory. But you're able to like incur. You know, if let's say you're writing, you're an established author, you want to write a novel about uh, a dude ranch or sailing or something like that, and you decide I'm going to go spend a couple months on a um, uh, a boat in the South Pacific or whatever I'm going to do. I'm going to go on a research assignment. There are elements that. They will let you instead of just writing those off in one year you're able to capitalize those expenses, which means you can just use them in subsequent years and more or less depreciate it so there are some there are some times where that when you and I think when you're writing sort of, if it advances into different levels and things like that, I think that there are additional options to you but I think sort of at the core fundamental starting out level, I don't know that um I think you could do it uh it but it depends it, absolutely on your individual circumstance, and as I said I would never. If it was a personal client, I would, I would, I would really want to talk about it and just try to get to the bottom of it and say, I would, I would never advise you to do something that wasn't in your best interest, and uh, I would never, uh, I would never advise anyone uh, to do anything where they wouldn't pay their correct tax. So if I, if it looked like an offset or if it looked like a personal expense, I would say, I'm sorry, I, I don't think this is in your best interest, and uh, that's my, you know, part of my ethics code or part of what we do is to make sure as CPAs and tax preparers is we want to, uh, we want to help you make, you know, we want to help you follow the rules. We want you to pay the correct tax. But that said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't if it was legitimate and it looked great. Let's do it. You
1: know, uh, go ahead.
0: Wow, okay. Do I count my sponsors and my income
2: contributions for giving free stuff as money, like income? Or is it... It's a great question, nice, too. you really nice, for doing PR? Yeah, I'm going to... Because of... So there are elements of that. So let's say... I mean, it also is so like if you're a musician or you're being... You know, getting promotional items and stuff like that, there are, there are um, distinct... Uh, aspects to that as well. Let me—I'll grab you a card and let me look. And so I don't have a that, instead of giving you the wrong answer, let me dig back. Yeah, no. It's a, I think it's a, it's a worthy consideration. Um, yeah, and those ones are that's fairly it's a fairly specialized. I know that for people who ski and and, and have promotional materials provided to them, there are um, tax implications for that. And so um, I'd have to look back. I've never had a client that's had I've been in those situations, but. That doesn't mean I won't, so I would, yeah, I'd be happy to, to reach back on that for you. Um, so we'll do meals and entertainment. So the general rule on this one, it's got to have a business purpose. Um, it, basically, you know, a, and again, a really easy common sense one. You can only deduct half of it, and you need to have talk about business at some point during or after. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, I think, What are, do we write on the back of the receipts here? Uh, lighthouse when we document them? Is that when we do meals and entertainment, what we do we just write on the back of the receipt or do a, a site memo with it. Yeah. And that's how we go.
1: <laughs>
2: I don't, I, I personally, I, I've never met a client, I've never done it. Um, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't.
1: Like a client or a customer at the, like it, if it's a staff meeting, it's
2: not a... No. Team. That's different because we're, if we do a staff meeting, then we're sort of are doing it as the entity is providing the food and not an individual's buying. But like, let's say... We decided to go out and have coffee or a beer and talk about your taxes you know or we decided to get something to eat because our blood sugar was low and you know <laughs> Then we, yeah it would be a, and we talked about taxes and we talked about your riding situation we would absolutely you could write off half of it and it's an ordinary and necessary business expense people eat food they go out I and that's a good question I was just thinking about that yeah, and um
1: pot. <laughs>
2: um <laughs> The pot stuff is a really—it's a really—it's it's um, tax-wise, uh, it's a a really hot issue um, for many reasons, and and one of the reasons is that a lot of these dispensaries don't have—they're not using banks, and uh, for many reasons. So there's kind of a, a lot of weird stuff going on. And um, first of all, there's a lot of money moving out, in and out of that industry. I
1: mean, I mean, I wonder about the
2: alcohol, yeah, I think. Know, Yeah, that's a no-no. That. No, so usually on that, on the expense reports and things like that, I know you typically keep alcohol off, but I think there there are other implications for that as far as like, you know, whether you're drinking on work time and 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 factors that might be if you're doing this on your own. Um, I might I might have to look up alcohol. I always just know it's, it's meals and entertainment, which I know it means people are also going to place <laughs> um, and they're they're entertaining clients, and I know there's a whole different. Um, set of rules for that kind of situation, but um generally it's fifty percent and usually it's food. uh, and and I'm not entirely sure if it's drinks or separate. So um so now this next part is very simple, easy. So what if you say we're in the class and you're like, hey, hobby last rules, not for me. I'm doing this as a hobby. I do have occasional income. Um what do I do? Like I don't want to I don't want to keep my account separate. Like, I, I just want to do this as a hobby. I want to keep it easy. Uh, this isn't for me. So what you're able to do is you're essentially able to, if you have income, you sell, let's say you sell a piece for $1,000. Um, if you have related expenses, you're just, a label, you're just able to eliminate um, that income, essentially, and just put it down to zero, and that's it. And a lot of times you'll see this with like uh, uh, collections, collectors have these kinds of things. Where they're just—they might have something that's appreciated, that sells something that's depreciated. They just wipe it out. It's done, and they don't want to do anything else with it. They just do it for you know the love of it, and they don't have—they uh, have no intention of of making a profit at it. Or um, you know the big distinction between a hobby and a business is the business you can take losses with a hobby you can just eliminate income. So um, that's pretty much how that works. Yeah. And There's a technical way that it's done, and so I, I thought it would spare you how the money comes in and goes out on your forms but um go ahead
1: do
2: you mean about time spent, no time uh on these on these actions your time especially in like a thing like writing uh you're you're really not compensated for it until you're selling unless you're doing something like uh teaching or freelance work whereas then you're showing you have income coming in it's a it's It's a definitely um it's a tough conceptually. It's a difficult issue because if you're a painter or you're a writer, you're you know conceptually you're putting in thousands of hours into a piece of work, and then when the incomes you know if you have income start coming in, you know you don't really have like a cost of goods sold because it's not really a, you know in it is a product and it isn't a product, but in essence, um, it just doesn't it doesn't work the same way as if uh, like a job like you were manufacturing something. And I and I'm not entirely sure how painters do it, but I think that. The time that goes in, they sell the piece, then they're able to just sort of deduct their expenses in making it, and that's pretty much how that works. But your time typically is not deductible. Um, if you, there are other ramifications, like if you were an employee of your own S corp and things like that, then you know that's a more complicated business structure. You can you can pay yourself, um, but that's just kind of a, a much more complex situation. So, was um, there another? Is that did that answer it? Okay. Um, Let's see. So that takes it off. If you just want to do it as a hobby, um, we talked a little bit about documentation. Uh, so just know that there's no there's no one way. There's not like a prescribed way that the government decides that how you should keep your documents. Um, I typically see, uh, uh, you know, the, does everyone know what those big manila, manila envelopes or things like that? I I I have people whose stuff is completely like like a file and you know very organized things. I also occasionally just get things that are stuffed to the brim with things, and then they hand them to me, and I see them going like this and walking away. Um, uh, So you know, it's up to you. But if I were, you know, if I was uh, doing this a business as a, if I was writing as a business, I would, I would just keep my stuff pretty well organized. You know, everyone has a PC, I'm assuming. You know, everyone has a a file folder. It's pretty straightforward stuff. Um, So. Just a good thing to remember about your documentation is that if you were to be challenged, that you, as a taxpayer, you bear the burden of proof. So that means if you're going to deduct an expense, you need to be able to prove it. And if they were to say, "How do you substantiate this?" you need to be able to say like this. And because of everything, they're just looking for facts. They don't look for intent. It's like, "Well, I intended to do this." That doesn't really that doesn't really work, uh, especially you know in this system. It's you bear the burden of proof. So. Keep documentation. Um, and there's just some, I think, really common sense. Uh, and just be careful of the invisible ink receipts. I do see that occasionally where it'll be like a year later, and then the ink is all worn out, and then I have to put it up near my face, and I it doesn't work. Um, so you can scan them. Take a, Everyone has a camera phone or a phone. Take a picture. Um, so there is a, I, I will talk a little bit about the statute of limitations. I think everyone hears about this, and... Um, and this is essentially, we're, so it's, it's, it's of the same sort of discussion of um, whether you can carry losses back or forward. Um, but if this is how long can you get audited by the IRS? How long can they come? Um, so the, it's three years from the date that the tax was due or when you filed the return. So let's just say <laughs> three years. So mm-hmm. this year will be 2014. They can, uh, and they're doing it for 2000, the 2013 tax year. So they can challenge back up through 2010. So, um, and that is uh, that's just how that works. Um, and that's if what's it called? I'm sorry. If if you owe additional tax, so if you're not reporting or you forgot a 1099 or anything like that, they can look back three years. If they find out that you have um, omitted income or thrown away your 1099s when you got them, um, <laughs> and you're evading taxes essentially, um, it's six years. Um, if you don't file a return. And you just say you're a contractor, and you're like, "Come get me." Um, there's no limit. So, um, and that's the same thing as if you and there, there, you know, there's some very unfortunate cases about um, people filing, stealing people's information, filing fraudulent returns, and their names, and you know that kind of thing. I mean, that there's no limit on that. So, if you're committing, that's that's committing a crime. Um, so, if uh, if you're doing that, then there's no limit. They'll, so, I think, um, and I'll grab your question. Um, if you get paid as a ten ninety nine the way this works is you give uh, when we do it at lighthouse, if you 're a vendor for us and you have you know you 're going to make over six hundred dollars, I send you a form that says, "Hey, I need you to identify yourself um, to our entity to our organization, and so you i'll have you complete a w nine and if we pay you over six hundred dollars, we file a report um, uh, and i won 't give the form numbers, but uh, we file a report. To you and to the IRS, and it says um, this individual made this amount of money, and it's tied to that Social Security number. And so, let's say you're like, "I'm not paying taxes on this," or like, "You know I'm saying? I don't need to do this. It's only a thousand dollars." It will what they what you've and when you file your taxes, you're basically reporting and saying, "Hey, this is my information, and this is what I made, and um, this is what I'm claiming." And if they Look back through and say like, hey, this isn't, and they say, it's all by computer. But if you're not claiming that thousand dollars on that tax return and it's not lining up, they're going to write you a letter and say, hey, remember that thousand dollars? <laughs> we do. It doesn't seem like you do. <laughs> <laughs> and they're gonna, they, they like you to um, to pay the tax on that. So, um, do they give you a chance
1: to amend?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You get an amend. I think that there are some. They're they're fairly forgiving if it's they're self prepared and they're just general errors. I think that they're um, for For like a preparer they 're not very friendly with that. Um, I think on some of them, I think some of the fines were I think one of them was I know there's one category of tax returns if you um, if you screw up on those, you can really get fined pretty heavily um, and then general errors i mean if you're, the, the idea is that you 're a professional, you really should be um, either you have a self review process or something that 's making sure the returns are correct so yeah yeah
0: my question is um.
1: Well, are you required to
2: file quarterly? Or... It's a great question. So and that is a 10 uh, so that's the 1040 ES and um, so there're two things I left out of here were um, and not on purpose but just because they're kind of complicated the conceptually is that if you are a 1099 employee you're technically self-employed and so you have to pay pay self-employment tax. Um, and so when you're an employee you pay when you see your Social Security and your Medicare, and uh, you see your withholdings. Your employer is paying part, and you're paying part. When you're self-employed, you pay both parts. And so that's why, if you're working on a contract or anything like that, you should be getting paid more because you're you're working for yourself and you're bearing the cost of both of the you're bearing the both the employer and uh, employee portion of those taxes. And so, with the 1040. What, the, what, she's, what we're, she's talking about is estimated payments. I don't, I don't know if any of you... If you have a W-2 job, you don't you typically run into it because they require you to withhold. And one of the reasons why is because if they didn't require you to hold, most people wouldn't. And so um, they want you to withhold the tax. And they want you to... Uh, the, the technical rule is that they want you to withhold, I think, 90% of the last year's tax. or And then there's a second piece of it. And I, don't, I don't recall it off the top of my head. But if you're anticipating that you're going to make a lot more money in a given year, there's... Um, it's uh, there's a form that you go and fill out, and you would basically um, fill out um, tax vouchers. And you can pay them online, or you can mail them in. They're with your social security number, and you're basically mailing in a voucher with your estimated tax payment. So if you're getting big t- 1099 money in, um, I you know it's a best practice. I would recommend doing it. It'll make it so that when tax season comes, that you don't owe a lot of money, and then you there you if you don't withhold enough they do fine you. It's not a big fine, but it is annoying. You can avoid it. Um, go ahead. I
1: think it's 110% creates a safe harbor.
2: Okay, so it's 90 and 110. Okay. Yeah, I know it's 90% of last year's tax or 110% or there's a there's a magic um, area that you want to be within. Um, and so I'm I'm trying to remember. I, and I know I'll I'll say this only because you know, it's fun to come up here and say like, "Oh, do this, this and this," but I didn't like last year I didn't withhold and I paid out the nose for it, so I mean, I uh, I didn't withhold. I had a really big tax bill, and had I been a little bit smarter about it, I wouldn't have been like, "Oh man, where am I going to? How am I going to pay these taxes?" <laughs> and so, you know, uh, it just it, it's it, doing the estimated payments allows you to be smart about it. It allows it so that you don't in April be like, "Oh, jeez, we're going to have to do," you know, "we're going to have to find a way to pay this." So, uh, go ahead. That's an, we had a question at the break, and it says if you it's under six hundred, or you get the payment in cash, um, for whatever of whatever reason you are supposed to report it. Okay. So it's you as an individual. Let's say you made five hundred dollars. They're not going to send you a ten ninety nine, but um, the rule is that you would report and you would report your cash receipts. So if someone, if I did a tax return or you sold, you did work for somebody, said like, hey, I'll read your manuscript for a few hundred dollars, um, then you would and they paid you in cash then they would be able to you know you should report that. And the only reason and I know it's everyone laughs and I think it's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> however I would say if you're going to re- operate as a business and you're showing you're wanting to show revenue and things like that, hey, that's good job. <laughs> like mm-hmm. now you're showing you have a receipt, you know, you've made some money and if someone pays you in cash, I know it's it sucks to pay the taxes on it, but if you're trying to report income, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah. So
1: so if I pay someone,
2: Do mm-hmm. I need to ask them for their no. number? No. So, it, so it's only do over.
1: It's only with them when they, they don't report it? Or it's only after. It? <laughs> it's, no, it's a great,
2: no, these are great questions because then you're. So let's say you hire someone to read your manuscript that's over $600. Um, you are. It, it, I mean, technically speaking, I don't know how many people do it, but I'll say, you know, it's saying up here, obviously, follow the rules, and but you are supposed to generate a 1099 from them. Saying that I taxpayer paid this individual or entity, not entity, because if it's like a, if it's a business, like if let's say you have like a, if you're dealing with someone who has is 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 doing editing or something like that, or or you're getting a, a manuscript ready for self-publishing, if you paid them six hundred dollars, there that's a business. Um, if you're paying other individuals and things like that for work performed, and you're you you are technically supposed to generate a ten ninety nine. So, that's the that's the. The difficult administrative answer is yes. Um, do I think people do it? I don't know. I mean, do I think it's in your best interest to do it if you're if you're trying to deduct that expense? Yes. But but if I'm
1: going to deduct it, then, then if the other person doesn't put it on their returns, then that's they, their problem. Feet is on the table, and when they look and try to match up my deduction with
2: there, they're not going to like you, anymore. they're not going to like me. So what what it asks for on your uh, Schedule C if you do this as a business? It will say, um, "Do you have to generate 1099 forms?" Which means, uh, "Is there anyone that's done anything that you would need to generate this form?" And you say yes or no. On the, this is on the tax form, so you would say yes. I paid this individual to do the following things. I've generated, you know, an invoice 1099. It's a you know business transaction. It's done, uh, and you issue that to them. If he doesn't report it, uh, that's his problem. Yeah, and. Uh, The hard part is you need social security numbers. Um, so then it becomes you need a – so you're saying like, hey, I'm sorry. you know I have to issue a – no, you know. I, it is weird when you're just like, I'm sorry, I have to issue a 1099. Um, and I do run – it. you know, you do run into it with subcontractors if you have – it's a weird thing. But you do have to issue it. And you would be saying, hey, I issued a 1099 to this person. And, yeah, then it's their problem. So – and hopefully that they do the right thing. And Did you have a – She asked my question. Okay. um yeah sure sure and then uh i think we have the how to pick a cpa or tax preparer if you go that route um go ahead
1: what about something like crowdsourcing or like kickstarter if people um you know get ten thousand dollars to self-publish do you have to pay taxes
2: on that um there are some gift uh some gift tax elements to that um so it's actually it, there really isn't I, i'd have to i'll check the how crowdfunding is using or how that's how that counts but typically you are able to just give money to another person as a gift um and i think it's up to like thirteen thousand a year uh, it's in i don't remember if it's 12 or 13 you have to forgive my i don't always remember the exact numbers but you're able to give money gift money to other individuals um and so if if the Project was and I saw this actually on Kickstarter. Now that you mention it, this lady was going to and it didn't work, but she was gonna uh, she was doing crowd sourcing to like fund a novel project when she was gonna go to Italy, and was gonna eat food and uh, write a memoir or something about it.
1: And she got a
2: really good video, professionally produced video, and like you know she wrote up her own little thing and it didn't work. But had it worked, I would have to absolutely. I mean, I'm not as familiar on how crowd how crowdsourcing would work as far as contributed capital to a business. My guess would be it would be a gift to the individual, and there are tax consequences with that, and then that individual would then contribute the capital to the business and then proceed and uh, see if it worked. So um, is that answer? And I said, I'll grab you a card, now. I will look up the crowdsourcing on that one if you have any questions or if you are considering doing crowdsourcing to sort of jumpstart your, your book. Hey, this is the new. This is a new era of uh, of all these things, and these are great questions. Um, uh, the the self publishing thing on Amazon blows my mind. Just that, that, that previously you didn't have access to a marketplace unless you went through a very traditional uh, thing, or you were going to print your own book. And I, we, you know, now you can print your own book. You can self publish. I mean, there's a lot of different avenues. Does that mean just because you you do that that you're going to make money selling it? I don't know, but uh, you have access to markets that you previously didn't have, and you have access to funding, um, revenues, and sources that you previously didn't have. And I don't know if you've been on the, you know, the there's more television programs, there's more demand for content than there ever has been before, and so um, this creative work is, is you know is is very much in demand. So I am
1: planning to
0: self-publish this year, mm-hmm. and. Um, you said that it's probably not a like you don't necessarily need to form a corporation of any sort mm-hmm. to do that. But as a self published author, if I make some sort of mistake <laughs> in my work, mm-hmm. I'm the one that's solely
1: liable for that. I don't have a publisher to back me up.
2: Correct. And it kind of depends on what work you're doing and then what what risks there are. And so as a as a CPA I can just tell you structure you know, business structure wise, like um, I can say what I can give you some ideas of what I know about it, but if you were if from a liability standpoint if you were faced if you were looking at like um some some unique circumstances to your individual work or sort of its content or if it was about an individual or something like that or you know there was some risk to you um i would also suggest potentially just running through an attorney yeah. and talking about sort of the best um your best position so yeah. as your accountant i can tell you for taxes what i think would be great for you um i only say that just from the standpoint as you know there are, if you have any liability concerns, I mean, obviously, you, you guys all know your projects. And there, if, there's any, if there's any concern about that, and I think there's classes here that we do um, for ethics of writing and, and things like that. And so I think if there's any consideration, you would know that you were in that, uh, that that was a concern for you. Um, and I would, I would suggest meeting with a, an attorney if you had those concerns. But, yeah, if you want to talk about it, I, can, um, I, I don't know if I know anyone who does writing. Uh, writing law or you know these kinds of considerations. But I think a general practitioner might be also a good choice. If
0: I'm writing under a pen name, mm-hmm. do I need to do some sort of doing
2: business as yeah pen? you're getting into some fun stuff. Um, so that's what you're doing then is um, and it's it's something that I like when you form an L, so uh, if this is rudimentary I apologize, but if you form an LLC you're you're basically separating yourself from an entity so if you name it as a pin name then that entity is the pin name that's the business you're doing business as um you know bert e frobe that's uh you're doing business as and then as you're running your bank accounts and things through that business then that's that's its own thing like that becomes sort of its own living and breathing entity um that's very complex you like uh you're if you form an LLC, you have to go through the Secretary of State of Colorado and pay fifty bucks, and you don't need to go to LegalZoom. Maybe you do. It's hundred. I think it's hundred if you do the LegalZoom. But um, then you're sort of setting up your own structure, and you still file the same tax forms. But there is some there is some distinction as far as that that entity starts to become its own thing. Um, for some of the stuff we've talked about today with the hobby loss rules, you're essentially doing. You're setting up some. Of, if you decide to do that, you're setting up some of the same elements of a, of a, of a separate entity. And that's kind of what distinguishes what's personal, and then what belongs to that entity. So, does that answer that question?
1: Kind of. I guess I'm just like
0: curious if it's if like I'm doing anything to mislead a buyer of my book, um, saying that my name is not my actual name. I don't know if that's a legal question
2: or. That might be. Well, it depends. I mean, so if, if the accounting question is like just the entity standpoint, I think that's fairly straightforward. Um, as far as liability standpoints, I mean, you might, and if there's, depending on what sort of, what risk that the book has or what risk personally to you that they would have, um, LLCs, as long as the, you know, you're know, you sort of keeping things separate, the only thing at risk is the LLC and the assets contained within it. Um, if the things aren't separate, they, everything's up. So you can be sued for damages and things like that. Whereas if you have an LLC, that LLC is its own thing. So it's, damages are limited to that. And where you get into and, and this probably isn't the greatest forum for it, but, you know, there are some, some best practices for those kind of situations. And, I, and so, uh, I can tell you the tax situations for it, but I would, I would refer to a, a general practitioner attorney to, to sort of to really give you the details on, on, that, on those considerations. So, all right, um, any other questions? You guys are doing great. You guys are all awake. This is engaging. Um, are you
1: accepting more clients right
2: now? I do, I do have private clients. And I do accept private clients, and they said um, i'm also my intention of doing this wasn't to grab clients it wasn't a client grab. my intention to do this was i do i, I think knowledge is uh in this area is just really important I think uh, you can find there's tons of resources online so and I think you uh, know a lot of this stuff you can do for free, but if you have a, other questions or you would like to you know if you wanted to um, discuss things further i'd be I'd be happy to do that so um that brings in a ni- nice uh Uh, nice segue so we're accountants we're not good with words Um, just to picking a tax preparer and I just have some just some general tips Um, first and foremost um, you can do it yourself Um, you can do your own taxes and as we talked about there are ramifications and you you are responsible for figuring it out Uh, it can be hard but probably no harder than putting together a thousand page manuscript right it's just how, how you want to spend your time so um, just, I, I would, my only thing is, if you if you do hire a practitioner, you, there's a couple different names. You can hire an attorney that does taxes. You can hire a CPA that does taxes. Um, CPAs do all kinds of things. Uh, and you can hire. There's a an IRS designated It's an enrolled agent, and they have other and it, other people who do taxes and things like that. But uh, my, you know, mostly just find someone that understands your situation, <laughs> has time for you, and, and basically that you're able to get the service that you want from them. Um, if you want to just hand them an envelope, and, uh, that's I think. That's fine, and if you want to discuss taxes and things like that, you find someone that that's willing to do that with you, and if you really want to understand it, I, have, I have all different. Uh, my private clients have had all different kinds. I have guys who want to sit down and meticulously go through their taxes for like two hours, and I'm happy to do it. You know, let's uh, let's get down and you know let's like uh, get the green visors on and let's get down to it um, and get the tax manuals out and stuff like that because the taxes are complicated but i have i have clients that want to do that and i have other clients that are just like hey, this is your problem um so um and i i would i would really if if you went, if you run into the, to the two things taxes are really competitive the price should be the price unless there's something that you didn't tell the tax preparer when they bid your taxes uh, the price should be the price. And you don't need audit defense or any of these other products. I mean, some of those things should be a standard service. If you're paying someone good money to do your taxes, there are some things that should just be included, um, that they would be with you. Should you get a notice from the IRS that you're designating that person to, to represent you and be on, to be there on your behalf, that's, an, that's a standard service. And you shouldn't pay extra for that. Um, and then also just... Their guy the the prices on it it is wildly competitive, so what the price you might get from a commercial provider is going to be different from an individual practitioner it's competitive if you don't like it, go somewhere else because there's somebody that's going to be right for you and you don't have to settle for bad service or you know something that you don't like with your money so that's my um those are my sort of best practices and just someone who who you know you feel like you can get the best service from and you can always do it yourself is that there's I mean a million resources I think there's a. I mean God there's a I went in researching the topic wow taxes for writers deductions for writers I mean the, the hits are just on and ongoing and ongoing the IRS is um, a lot more I think is friendly but I you know I, I might be the exception to that but they have lots of manuals and things like that that you can read and I don't know if I'm the only person that does that for fun <laughs> um, so but yeah I. those are the things so the tax mails i have, get this big guide every year and it's a thousand pages and i'm always really excited when i get it <laughs> um it's really because there's been some really great things in this last year i mean there's been a lot of changes so yeah so that i don't i shouldn't say anything else before you think i'm too weird but um so yeah so if there's any other questions i'd be happy to answer them for a group or if you have anything i'll be around for a while if you have any individual questions
1: really? go ahead to expenses mm-hmm. um
0: I like it. Uses? Yep,
2: okay. I think percentage of use. Um, uh, we, I don't. For my business, I don't have a separate cell phone for the business, and I just use a, a percentage of the phone that I use for business, or my estimate of it. I, I don't write off the whole thing. And I think just a general rule of thumb is there's like, a, you know, there's what, what sounds reasonable to you? If you heard someone else doing this, would you be aghast? <laughs> would you like <laughs> iPad? You're writing off your cell phone bill like if I think just you know, common sense on a lot of these things goes a long way. So thanks a lot. I know these are, um, and I can can grab it. Um, Thanks a lot.
0: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.